I think there can be no doubt that Christ's return is near. I mean, I dare say your other speakers have mentioned these sorts of things already this week. But it seems every other day, there's another news headline which has an enormous prophetic significance. I mean, the virus, as we know, continues to ravage the world and men's hearts are failing them for fear. Australia, as it turns out now, is breaking ties with China, a regional neighbour, and forging ties with India because of implications of the virus, which obviously only weld the young lines together, which is what we would expect to see in the last days. Russia's just built a new cathedral, actually a new cathedral dedicated to their military, and in particular to commemorate past and future military victories. Remarkable. And now Erdogan from Turkey has decided that he's going to convert the Hagia Sophia from a museum into a mosque. Putin has already said he's going to take that cathedral and convert it back to a cathedral. So Turkey's actions are only going to inflame Russia, which may well be one of the triggers that brings Russia against Turkey prior to the Battle of Armageddon. So, you know, every which way we look, they are happening, which speak of the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what we wish to do this evening is to investigate another end-time prophecy, in fact, a little-known prophecy, the prophecy we've just read together in the last verses of Numbers chapter 24. And we're going to look this evening particularly at verses 23 and 24 of Numbers chapter 24, which is a prophecy concerning the ships of Shittim. Now, this prophecy, of course, occurs in the life of Balaam. Balaam, as you'll a prophet of God who lost his way. And he had been employed back in these days by the king of Moab, a man called Balak. And Balak's purpose was to employ Balaam to curse the nation of Israel, which had just emerged from the 40 years and was about to take the land of Canaan. Well, the issue was, of course, that in Numbers chapter 21, Sihon and Og, kings of the Amorites, had defeated Moab. And now Israel, in these previous chapters, had recently defeated Sihon and Og. So a force that had overthrown Moab had now been overthrown by Israel, and Israel was on Moab's borders. And so, of course, the Moabites panicked. They hire Balaam to curse Israel. But rather than cursing Israel, Balaam blesses Israel. Well, the king of Moab is furious with all this. And in verse 10 of Numbers 24, it says that Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. He smote his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called thee to curse my enemies. And behold, there's altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now, flee to thy place. I thought to promote thee to great honor, but lo, Yahweh has kept thee back from honor. So Balaam is summarily dismissed and asked to leave the country by the king of Moab because of the failure that Balaam had in trying to curse the nation. Well, of course, Balaam does leave the country, but he says in verse 14, all right, he says, I will go. But now before I go to my people, come therefore and I'll advertise or advise thee what this people, Israel, shall do to thy people, Moab, 
in the latter days. So what you have here from verse 14 onwards is an unsolicited prophecy of Balaam. That is, he's going to give prophecies to the king of Moab without being asked as he's thrown out of the land and as he himself journeys home. The significance of this, of course, is in verse 14, the last words of verse 14, that what Balaam is giving here is a prophecy for the latter days. This is a prophecy, as it will turn out, relating to the events surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom in the latter days. Now, these are the prophecies of Balaam. The first prophecy you'll see from the screen is in chapter 23, verse 7. And it's a simple prophecy to say that Israel's different to the nations. They're a separate people. Uh, Chapter 23, verse 18 is the second prophecy that Balaam gave, that Israel will one day become a great nation. The third prophecy, chapter 24, verse 3, Israel's kingdom will be exalted over Gog. That's what that prophecy is about. And then prophecies 4, 5, 6, and 7 are what Balaam asks here in these final words of Numbers 24, commencing at verse 15 and concluding in verse 24. And those four prophecies talk about a star that shall arise, that is a king of Israel that shall arise and lead them to glory. Speaking, of course, of the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ at the initiation of the kingdom age. Uh, That Amalek, in verse 20, whoever he is, he will perish forever. The Kenites, verse 21, 22, whoever they are, will be preserved in exile. And then finally, all fleshly power will cease in verses 23 and 24. The battle of Armageddon, as we'll explain, and the final destruction of the latter-day Amalekite. So, So that's what the prophecies of Balaam are. And as I say, our focus this evening is on this very last one, particularly verses 23 and 24, the prophecy concerning the ships of Shittim. It's a most intriguing prophecy. As you read it, it says in verse 23 of Numbers 24 that Balaam took up this parable. This is the seventh of the seven parables or prophecies that you can see that Balaam gave. And he said, alas, who shall live when God doeth this? And ships shall come from the coast of Shittim. They shall afflict Asher. They shall afflict Eber. And he also shall perish forever. So alarming is this prophecy, it appears, that it takes Balaam's breath away. Who shall live, verse 23, when God does this, he says. Who shall live when God gathers a people from the north? That's what Balaam's saying. The uh, New International Version margin against verse 23 says, Who shall live when a people shall gather from the north? It's a reference to the northern invasion of the nation of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. But in the midst of all of that, it says in verse 24 that there are going to be ships that come from Shittim. Now, Shittim, as I'll show you, is Cyprus. It's the modern-day Cyprus. And those ships coming from Cyprus are going to attack the mainland. Asher, which is Assyria, or Iran, and Eber, which is Iraq. So there's going to be an invasion in the last days, 
Remember verse 14, latter days. There's going to be invasion in the latter days, which commences from Cyprus and attacks the mainland, Syria, Iraq, Iran, that region. Who shall live when God does it, he says. The result's going to be, at the end of verse 24, that he shall perish forever. Whoever this he is, it's going to result in great destruction. Which is why, as I mentioned a moment ago, it took Balaam's breath away. He, now Balaam, of course, wouldn't understand exactly what this prophecy was saying. But he understands it's an extremely significant prophecy. A devastating prophecy. Well, that's what we're going to spend the next... 40 or 50 minutes discussing what exactly is this prophecy about and when would we expect it to occur? And talk about events in the Eastern Mediterranean. I'm going to talk about that because, of course, that's where Cyprus is. And Cyprus has become notorious in news headlines in the last few years because of other things that have happened in her region, there has been oil and gas discovery in the Mediterranean. And these have, as I'll show you, affected Cyprus and brought Cyprus to front and centre of people's minds. At the start of the 20th century, the only country in the Middle East that hadn't discovered oil was Israel. In the previous hundred years, all Israel themselves upon their oil discoveries. And then all of a sudden in 2009, Israel discovered the Tamar offshore gas field in the sea to the west. In 2010, they discovered Leviathan, the Leviathan natural gas field. Then in 2011, Cyprus discovered Aphrodite. 2015, Egypt discovered Zor. 2017, 18, Cyprus then discovered Calypso and Glaucus. And all of a sudden, there were massive degas discoveries in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. Now, this gas has been discovered in, a, in an area called the Levantine Basin. Levantine, named after the Levant. The Levant, the word Levant, simply means the east, but it means the areas of Syria, Iraq, Israel, Jordan. That's the Levant. So this is the Levantine Basin, where all this gas has been discovered. It's estimated that the amount of gas that's been discovered in the Levantine Basin is about 3 trillion cubic metres, which is a volume equivalent to the demand of Eastern and Western Europe for about eight years. So the, the gas that's found in this area could supply the whole of Europe for the best part of the next decade. And the significance of that, you see, is not just that this gas will benefit the countries that own it, but that this gas is on the doorstep of Europe. And that's enormously significant. The gas is right on the very doorstep of Europe. And you say, well, okay, why is that so important? Well, here's why. Because up until now, the major source of European gas has been Russia. Currently, Russia supplies about 40% of all of Europe's gas. Most of the rest comes from Norway, but Norway is declining. In 2018, 2019, Russia was the largest supplier of all of Europe's gas. And that fact, of course, has given Russia an enormous amount of control over Europe. 
Because at any moment, if they don't do what Russia says, she can turn off that gas. Well, the question then becomes, well, would Russia do that? And the answer is, yes, absolutely she would. In 2009, she did turn off the gas to the Ukraine. And it, you know, it stopped everything in the Ukraine. But there is a problem with all of this. And you can see the problem just as you look at that map. The way that Russia gets its gas into Western Europe is, for the most part, by using pipelines that pass through the Ukraine. If Russia wants to turn off gas to the Ukraine, of course, it means that everybody downstream of the Ukraine also gets affected. And Russia hasn't been able to turn off the gas to the Ukraine without affecting Western Europe. And so what Russia has decided to do is build another pipeline into Western Europe that bypasses the Ukraine. And you can see that on the top of the picture. It's called the Nord Stream Pipeline. Now, there is one. They're building Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 comes on stream this year in 2020. Well, the significance of that is considerable. And this is what the news says. Here's Poroshenko the former president of the Ukraine in 2018. Nord Stream, or North Stream, as it would be in English, North Stream 2 is the Kremlin's Trojan horse against European energy and ultimately geopolitical security. So the Ukraine can clearly see the significance that this pipeline has for Europe. It's Russia's way of controlling Europe, he says. Mike Pence from the United States, Germany will become literally a captive of Russia. Because, of course, that northern, northern pipeline is going to go straight to Germany. You might say the capital of Western Europe. What about Germany? Well, Angela Merkel simply says the project has been fully approved. Geostrategically, Europe, can, Europe can't separatise with Russia. I mean, prophetically, that is of enormous significance if we see East and West in, in European context welded together. We understand from Daniel too that it's going to be religion that finally binds them together, but there's no question. Energy security between the two sides could well be a trigger which features in uniting eastern and western legs of Europe. So it's significant. But the point of all this, of course, is that gas discoveries in the eastern Mediterranean are a big problem as far as this is concerned. Because if there was gas to be discovered in the eastern Mediterranean and that gas made its way into Europe, then it reduces Europe's dependence upon Russia. Russia sees this as an enormous threat. Well, there's a few problems. One of them is world oil prices. World oil prices are expected to stay at very modest levels at least for the next 10 years. Russia depends heavily on its oil export revenues to prop up its economy. Anything, therefore, that could compete with Russian gas and lower oil prices are going to be a problem to Russia. But this is the tricky part. It's not cheap to develop these gas fields. The prospect of a pot of gold in the ground could easily lead countries to go to war with each other to claim that money. But for now, things are working well. Commercialising the gas is expensive. The best way to do that, therefore, is to do it cooperatively. For countries to get together and build joint assets to commercialise everybody's gas. They want to share infrastructure. They want to cooperate. That is the smartest commercial thing to do. 
Well, the consequence of all this is that Israel's now normalized relationships with Turkey. In 2019, Cyprus, Greece, Israel, Italy, Jordan, the Palestinians, and Egypt established the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum to cooperate in production and marketing activities. Israel is getting peace with her neighbors as a consequence of the prospect of economical prosperity for all. And now Israel and Cyprus want to build a pipeline linking those gas deposits to Italy via Greece. They want to they pipe that gas straight into Europe. And this could, of course, be exactly what we're looking for prophetically because what we need to see is Israel at peace with her neighbours while all of them slowly get rich and become a target for Russia in the Middle East. Well, Russia's already going to have a problem if this gas makes its way to Europe. So you can see, for a number of reasons, this is all tending in the direction which we would see, expect to see. These are our expectations, are they not? We expect to see that Israel will dwell safely, at rest, without walls, and having neither bars nor gates. Israel will be in security. Ezekiel 38, verse 8. She will not only be that, but she will be the target of spoil, silver, gold, cattle, and goods, says Ezekiel 38, verse 12 and 13. Egypt becomes a target, says Daniel 11, and verse 42, because of her gold, silver, and precious things. So the money in Egypt becomes a target. And then it says... The merchants of Tarshish, Ezekiel 38, verse 12. They're going to be upset by these events. And, and note well, Ezekiel talks about the merchants of Tarshish. Ezekiel doesn't say Tarshish. He doesn't say the military power of Tarshish. He talks about the business interests of Tarshish being a major issue at the Battle of Armageddon. Tarshish is Britain. The merchants of Tarshish are Western business interests allied to Britain. One of those main Western business interests, of course, is the exploration of gas in the Levantine Basin. One of the oil companies doing this exploration is ExxonMobil, which is an American oil company. And because of the sensitivity of the area, because everybody wants a piece of the action, because it's an historically unstable area, the ExxonMobil drilling ship that's there is accompanied by U.S. warships. So Anglo-American business interests are certainly part of Ezekiel chapter 38. And central to the whole Eastern Mediterranean energy question is the island of Cyprus. Cyprus doesn't often make itself into the, into the world headlines, but it has now because everybody's interested in Cyprus. Why is Cyprus so important? Well, not only has Cyprus discovered its own gas, but any pipeline connecting those gas fields to Western Europe has to go through Cyprus. I mean, I suppose it doesn't have to. You could lay it under the Mediterranean Sea, but it makes sense. It makes enormous sense to use Cyprus because if you can lay a pipeline on land, it's a lot cheaper than laying it underwater. Well, Cyprus has always been an important location militarily for the Western powers. Now it appears it's an important location commercially. And the merchants of Tarshish are very, very interested in Cyprus. So all of a sudden, 
Cyprus has become a very important place for more than one reason. Everybody's interested in Cyprus. And that brings us to the prophecies of Balaam. Because as we found a moment ago, these prophecies of Balaam, at least in chapter 24 of Numbers and verses 23 and 24, this prophecy speaks specifically about Cyprus. Cyprus is Shittim, and Shittim is the subject of an end-time prophecy in Numbers 24. So let's take a closer look now at Numbers 24 and just <clears throat> establish just what this prophecy is really talking about. We made the point earlier that verse 14 of Numbers 24 tells us that these prophecies from verses 15 and onwards are prophecies which relate to the latter days. The latter days is a significant phrase in Scripture. It appears in Ezekiel 38. A similar phrase appears in Daniel 2. It's the time period concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom age. Verses 15 to 19, the first of Balaam's, let's call it, unsolicited prophecies, the first of the prophecies that Balak, king of Moab, did not ask for, the fourth parable. Verses 15 to 19 talk about the star that shall arise in the latter days. This is the rise of Israel's future king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, the destruction of all Israel's enemies. Amalek shall perish forever, it tells us in verse 20. But look what it says. And Balaam looked, and looked on Amalek. He took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he shall perish forever. So here's a prophecy about the Amalekites. But it's a strange thing to say because the Amalekites are not really a feature of the latter days. The Amalekites were Israel's first enemy. I mean, in fact, it actually tells you that in the margin. It says that Amalek was the first of the nations. The margin says the first of the nations that warred against Israel. It was the Amalekites that it brings at the restart of the 40 years. So they were Israel's first enemy. The, well, and you read that, of course, in uh, Exodus 17 and verse 8. The problem is that the, Amal the Amalekites no longer exist. They might have been an ancient enemy of Israel, but they're certainly not a feature of the latter days. The last record you have of the Amalekites is in 1 Chronicles 4 and verse 43. In the days of Hezekiah, 700 BC. They're never heard of again after that time. So it's a strange prophecy you see to have in in a collection of prophecies by Balaam about the latter days. But they're significant. They're very significant. They've already perished forever, but there's more to come because what this prophecy in verse 20 does is sets us up for what follows. Amalek is the first of the nations that attacked Israel. He becomes a type of all nations that then want to attack Israel. And that's what opens up what comes next. Because verse 21 now goes on and talks about the Kenites. And it says, Balaam looked, he looked, took up his parable when he looked on the Kenites and he said, strong is thy dwelling place, Kenites, and thou puttest thy trust or thy nest in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted until Asher carry thee away captive. Or as the margin says better, 
How long shall it be ere Assyria carry thee away captive? So the Kenites, it appears, would survive, but they'd go into captivity. Well, who were the Kenites? What's the significance of the Kenites? Well, the Kenites are related to the Amalekites in Scripture. The Kenites lived with the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15 and verse 6, it says that Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the, among the Amalekites, and then Saul smote the Amalekites. So you see, there is a relationship between the prophecy of verse 21-22 regarding the Kenites and the Amalekites of verse 20. The Kenites then become a type of the Gentiles who would be saved by virtue of their relationship to Israel. Saul saved the Kenites, even though the Kenites lived among the Amalekites, even though the Amalekites were Gentiles hostile to the cause of Israel. There were some amongst them that were, were taken out before destruction came upon the Amalekites. And this, uh, this concept of a certain portion of the Gentiles being preserved is not foreign to these prophecies. I mean, look at verse 9 of Numbers 24. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, cursed is he that curseth thee. So Abrahamic language appears already in this chapter in relation to Gentiles who blessed the cause of national Israel. Well, here's another group here, the Kenites, living among the Amalekites, but protected by virtue of their relationship to the nation. So verse 20 is about the Amalekites, a people long gone, but typical of people in the future who are hostile to the cause of Israel. Verses 21, 22, the Kenites, people who live among the Amalekites, but Gentiles in this case, who are favourable to the cause of Israel and have their lives preserved. And that brings us now to the cryptic prophecy of verse 23 and 24. He took up this last parable, the seventh of the seven. And he said, alas, who shall live when God doeth this? And ships shall come from the coast of Shittim. They shall afflict Asher and shall afflict Eber, and he also shall perish forever. Now, the first thing to note about this prophecy is that the last line of verse 24 is the same as the last line of verse 20. And there's an enormous clue there, because when you ask me at the end of verse 24, who is the he that shall perish forever? Who is the target? Who's the victim of the maritime invasion from Shittim that causes him to perish forever? Well, evidently, the, if the last line of verse 24 is the same as the last line of verse 20, you might well reason that the he that shall perish forever in verse 24 is Amalek. Because it's Amalek that would perish forever in verse 20. And if verse 20 is the destruction of Israel's first enemy then verse 24 would be the destruction of Israel's last enemy. You might say the former and the latter day Amalekite, between verse 20 and verse 24. Well, how can we be sure? I mean, that, there's a good verbal link there, but how can we be sure that it's the Amalekites that are being destroyed at the end of verse 24, the latter day Amalekite? Well, I think 
you can be sure because of the way the Amalekites are spoken of throughout Balaam's prophecy. I mean, look at verse 7, for example, of Numbers 24. He shall pour water out of his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His, that is, Israel's king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So when Christ comes, he's going to be higher than Agag. Well, Agag was an historical king of the Amalekites. Agag personally was destroyed by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But there's a latter-day Agag, you see. In just the same way as there's a latter-day Amalekite. Numbers 23 verse 21 speaks about, or says this, that God has not beheld iniquity in Jacob or perverseness in Israel, but Yahweh has God's with him, and the shout of a king is among them. So Israel's going to have a latter-day king. It's the same king as you read of in chapter 24, verse 7. This king would triumph over Agag. Numbers 24, verse 17. The star will arise and smite the corners of Moab and so forth. The star is once again the king. So Israel's going to have a king. That king's going to come. That king, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That king will triumph over Agag, the latter-day Amalekite. The interesting thing about all of that, of course, is that uh, the Septuagint version in verse 7 doesn't translate the word Agag as Agag. It translates it as Gog. And that, of course, makes enormous sense because Gog is the king of the latter-day anti-Semitic invasion. So we're really talking about Russia being destroyed and the king of Russia being destroyed in the face of the latter-day king of Israel. So Gog invades the land, and the result is that he will be destroyed and perish forever, in the words of Numbers 24:24. But it's a terrible time, because Balaam says in verse 23, who shall live when God does this? Who shall live when God does this, he says. But even those words need a closer inspection because the phrase doeth this means to put forth or to appoint. Who shall live when God appoints, you might say. Well, appoints what? Appoints who? Appoints Gog. Who shall live when God appoints Gog? Because it's going to be a devastating time. But when Israel's king does come, Gog the latter-day Amalek, or the latter-day Agag, will perish forever. But in the midst of the calamity of Armageddon, we have a major maritime invasion, as is spoken of in verse 24. And in verse 24, we have three nations mentioned. I've already mentioned the interpretations of those, but let's do that in a little more detail. Shittim. Who is Shittim? Now, I've said Shittim is Cyprus. Well, yes, yes. Shittim, in uh, Genesis chapter 10, in the Table of Nations, Shittim is called Kittim. Kittim is a descendant of Jabin, uh, an ultimate descendant of Japheth, one of the sons of Noah. Josephus tells us that Jabin is Greece. And from Jabin came the maritime peoples of Italy, of Britain, of Cyprus, of Rhodes. This is Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Rodanim. So Greece begat all these maritime nations. These are the isles 
of maritime powers, of which, of course, Tarshish is one, a descendant of Javan. So no surprise, therefore, to find Kittim being Cyprus, uh, an island power, a maritime power, just like his brothers. Interesting, though, just as you look at this table, that Cyprus is the brother of Tarshish. That right from the very earliest days, there was a blood relationship between Tarshish, or Britain, and Cyprus. A noteworthy point. Well, what about Asher? Asher is very simple. Asher is simply Assyria. That is modern-day Iraq, Iran, and Eba. Now, this one's caused some controversy. Who is Eba? Well, this is Eba. Eba's a descendant of Shem. He's a, a Semitic tribe. But Shem, or Eba, in this case, is the father of the Jews and the Arabs. And my point is, not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Arabs. Eba, the word Eba, literally means the region beyond. And that means the region beyond the Euphrates. It's related to the word Hebrew. The word Eba is related to the word Hebrew because the word Hebrew means one from beyond or across or over the Euphrates. So Eba is the region beyond. And when you put all that together, this is what you find. Shittim is Cyprus. Asher is Iraq, Aram. And Eba is that region in between. Today, the region beyond the Euphrates, northeastern Syria. And so what you're reading in Numbers 24-24 is a maritime invasion that begins in Cyprus and attacks that central Middle Eastern area of Eba and Assyria and results, it tells us, in the destruction of Latter-day Agag of Gog, who will subsequently perish forever. So a major maritime invasion of the Middle East against Syria and Iraq in the last days originating from the island of Cyprus. That's what we're reading here in Numbers 24-24. But here's the question. In Ezekiel chapter 38, we've got two opposing armies. We've got Gog and his European confederates, or European and Middle East confederates, coming against the land of Israel. Then we have the Tarshish group, led by Britain, who opposes the Gogian invasion. So the question then becomes in verse 24, well, who is it that invades from Cyprus? Somebody from Cyprus invades the Middle Eastern area. It results in the destruction of Gog. Yes. But is it Gog that invades from Cyprus and is destroyed? Or is it the Tarshish group that invades that area from, from Cyprus and results in the destruction of Gog? Which one is it? And how could you tell? You see the problem. Who owns Cyprus? Who originates the maritime invasion from Cyprus? Well, to answer that question, we're now going to go and talk a little more about Cyprus and what we know about Cyprus. Genesis 10 verse 4 told us, as we've already seen, that Shittim, or Cyprus, 
is the brother of Tarshish. So you might reason straight away, that would begin to tilt the balance towards Tarshish being the owner of Cyprus because of this historic blood relationship between Tarshish and Shittim. But there's more. Shittim, as we've found, is the brother of Tarshish, and like Tarshish, was renowned for his maritime prowess. That's the point we've already made. Shittim and Tarshish, however, are both associated with the trading empire of Tyre. In Isaiah 23, verse 1, Babylon destroyed Tyre in 572 BC. The Tyrian sailors, returning from their uh, trading activities, would hear the news of the destruction of Tyre, of mainland Tyre, when they got to Cyprus. Because they would return from Western Europe or from the North Atlantic uh, via Cyprus, coming back to Tyre. And Isaiah 23 says, you will hear of the destruction of Tyre when you get to Cyprus. The fortress has been destroyed. And you'll hear that at Cyprus. It says in verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 23. So uh, not only were the, were the two boys, Tarshish and Shittim, related, but down through time, they were joined by their trading activities. In Daniel chapter 11, in verse 30, it tells us that certain ships of Shittim who would support the Ptolemaic king of Egypt in the Ptolemaic Greek Empire in about 160 BC, they would come against the Seleucid emperor Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of the north of 160 BC, as he threatened to take Alexandria in Egypt. Now, this is, that's an extremely interesting prophecy. Let me just, uh, well, actually, just turn up Daniel chapter 11. Let me just show you this, if you're not familiar with this, uh, because this, uh, I'm going to make the point here, but it does raise perhaps questions in your mind. Daniel 11 and verse 30 says this. For the ships of Shittim, so that's why we're in this verse. We're talking about the, about the maritime power of Shittim. And it says here that the ships of Shittim shall come against him, and therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. Even shall he return and have intelligence with them and forsake the Holy Covenant. All right. I'm not going to get into the detail of this verse, except to say this, that the ships of Cyprus shall come against Antiochus Epiphanes, who at that time was the king of the north. Now, what happened? What exactly was the story? Well, this is a story of the king of the north attacking the king of the south in about BC 168. The king of the north was the Greek Seleucid Empire that controlled all the area of Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. It was led by a king called Antiochus Epiphanes. And they were continually at war over hundreds of years with the king of the south, which was the Greek Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt. Well, the king of the north by, over time became more powerful. And it got to the point where the king of the north has now come from the north down through Israel. He's attacked Egypt. He's taken all the cities of Egypt. And now Antiochus Epiphanes has marched up to commence a siege against the capital of Egypt, which at that time was Alexandria. 
And he will be successful if he besieges Alexandria. The, the Egyptian Ptolemaic kingdom was utterly powerless in the face of the enormous army from the north. Well, because the Ptolemies were no match for the Seleucids, as the cities began to fall, they quickly sent an emissary to Rome. That is, the Greek Ptolemaic kingdom sent an ambassador to Rome begging Rome for help. When Antiochus finally marched up against Alexandria, the capital, it was the only city left to be captured in the Ptolemaic Empire before the whole empire fell to the king of the north. But as Antiochus surveyed Alexandria, an old man came out to meet him. Now, he knew this old man. This old man was a Roman. He had come from Rome at the request of the Egyptians, that is, at the request of the Ptolemaic Egyptians. Don't think of pharaohs. Think of Cleopatra, the Greek Ptolemaic Egyptians. And Antiochus knew this old man because this old man was Roman, and uh, Antiochus had grown up in Rome. He'd got his education at a boarding school in Rome. This old man was called Gaius Papilius Lanus. He was a delegate from the Roman Senate. Hello, Antiochus. Long time no see. Oh, hello, Lanus. What are you doing here? Oh, no, no. No, 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 no. You've asked the wrong question, Antiochus. The question is, what are you doing here? Down in Egypt, so far from home. You live in Antioch, in Syria. What are you doing here? Oh, I think it's pretty obvious, Lanus. I'm here to take the city of Alexandria and to conquer the Ptolemaic Empire. Ah, that's what I thought you were going to say, said Lanus. Well, I'm here to tell you you're not going to do that. Oh, are you? Indeed. And why is that? Because I'm here to tell you that's precisely what I intend to do. Well, says Lanus, you just have to understand this, Antiochus. The moment you do what you want to do, you become the enemy of Rome. And he handed him a decree from the Senate demanding him to leave Egypt. That is, the Senate, the Roman Senate, demanded that Antiochus Epiphanes immediately left Egypt. Well, Antiochus says these famous words. He says, well, all right, no problem. I understand. I'll have to consult my advisors. At which point, Papilius Labus took his stick. He was an old man. He took his stick and he walked around him and drew a line in the sand, a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and said, no problem. Make your decision before you leave the circle which of course has given rise to the modern idiom, a line in the sand. Antiochus had to make a decision before he crossed that line in the sand. Well, Antiochus was no, no match for the emerging power of Rome, and he knew it. And so he did leave Egypt, and the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt was never taken, finally, by the Seleucids. Uh, the consequence was, as verse 30 of Daniel 11 goes on to say, he vented his spleen upon the Jews and he went straight to Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple, slew, slew pigs in, on the altar, and killed many, many thousands of Jews, but never ever took Egypt. But you might ask me this. That's all very, very interesting, but clearly in verse 30, the ships of Shittim are not 
Cyprian. They are Roman. How does that help us if the ships of Shittim in verse 30 of Daniel 11 are from Rome and not from Cyprus? Well, that's the interesting thing because you see the route that Papilius Lanus took from Rome to Alexandria in Egypt went from Rome to Brindisi, a city on the southeastern coast of Italy, to Greece, to Rhodes, and then due south past Cyprus to Alexandria. So that from the point of view, for example, of Antiochus Epiphanes, watching all these things happen as he's about to besiege Alexandria, he sees ships come from the north directly from Cyprus, even though they didn't originate in Cyprus. Ships came from Shittim, as far as the Egyptians were concerned, and saved Egypt. The interesting thing, by the way, in all of that was, at that very time, Antiochus also controlled Cyprus. He had troops on Cyprus, and the Romans said to him, get out of Egypt and get out of Cyprus. The point of all of this is that Shittim historically supported the king of the south. Shittim historically was aligned with the king of the south. And that's very important because the king of the south is Britain. Well, historically has been Britain. Finally, Daniel chapter 11 is a parallel to Ezekiel chapter 38. In Daniel chapter 11, we have a, a latter-day invasion of the land of Israel, the same as we do in Ezekiel chapter 38. In Daniel chapter 11, well, in Ezekiel 38, Gog is called Gog, and it's clearly Russia, identified Meshach and Tubal, with the nation of Russia and her European allies. So in Ezekiel chapter 38, the latter-day invader from the north is presented as a latter-day Assyrian. In Daniel 11, he's presented as a latter-day Greek, a king of the north. So therefore, Shittim will be opposed to the king of the north. The island of Shittim in the last days will be opposed to Russian forces, just like it always has been down through history. So now roll that forward to the last days. And what do we see from Cyprus? Well, how about that? Cyprus can, contains two British military bases. Two military bases from Tarshish. Don't you know that Shittim's the brother of Tarshish? Don't you know they've had this millennia-long relationship and historically, Shittim has always supported the power of the king of the south. And she will do again. Cyprus was owned by the Turkish Empire up until 1878. In 1878, <clears throat> because Russia was an emerging power on the northern border of Turkey, Turkey signed a treaty with Britain called the Cyprus Convention. And, it became, and Cyprus became a British protectorate. Under this treaty, Britain would administer Cyprus in return for supporting Turkey against Russia. So Turkey didn't really want to give up Cyprus, but Britain wanted Cyprus, and Turkey needed military assistance against Russia. Well, Britain gave the assistance in return for Cyprus. Well, then World War I broke out. <clears throat> Turkey now found itself on the opposite side to Britain. I mean, it was treacherous as far as the British were concerned. They expected Turkey to side with them after all they'd done for Turkey. Well, the consequence of that was 
Britain immediately took Cyprus. There was no love anymore between Britain and Turkey. So now Britain inherits Cyprus and she took it. In 1960, last century, Britain granted independence to Cyprus, but retained on the island of Cyprus two military bases, Akrotiri and Akelia. And the significance of those two sites is that they're not just leased land bases for Britain, they are British sovereign territory. They are Britain. So Cyprus has independence as an autonomous country, well, split east and west between Greek Cyprus and Turkish Cyprus, but nevertheless independent, these two bases are Britain. And much the same as Gibraltar is Britain. Because it's a vital strategic location for Britain, you see. Planes from Cyprus can reach Syria in 15 minutes. They can reach the Suez Canal in 30 minutes. Cyprus has been called, is called by Britain, the unsinkable aircraft carrier. Because they can put airfields on Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, like they might on an aircraft carrier. But you can't sink this aircraft carrier because it's an island. Over time, those British bases have supported military action in World War I, in World War II, against Libya, against Iraq, against Syria. But they're more than just British military bases. They are NATO bases. And the moment they become NATO bases, it means somebody else is there, not just Britain. Well, it doesn't take long to figure out who else is there. The Americans are there. Now, of course, the Americans have large bases on the island of Crete. But because America and Britain are friends, America has a significant presence also on Cyprus. Even though they're British, it's really the American Navy that has the real power on Cyprus. Today, the US has got the most powerful Navy in the world. It has a battle carrier fleet in each of the world's seven oceans. Historically, this has never happened before, that one nation can control all seas simultaneously. Never in the history of the world until the 20th century could that ever have occurred, or did ever occur. But now one nation can do it. The US Sixth Fleet is based in the Mediterranean. It comprises some 50 ships based in Crete, but they have a significant presence also in Cyprus. You might reason, therefore, that the maritime invasion from Cyprus, though it be sponsored by the merchants of Tarshish, will involve a significant number of US warships. The British don't really have a maritime fleet of any proportion. They have some. They are an island nation, but not compared with the US, and it appears will never match the US in terms of the control of the seas. So it's likely that it's Britain's friends that supply the armour that will become this great maritime invasion from Shittim. All right, so now what do we expect to happen from Bible prophecy? Well, we're in Daniel chapter 11. It tells us in Daniel 11 and verse 40 that at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, chariots, horsemen, many ships, he shall enter the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So here is a latter-day invasion from the king of the north. 
against Egypt. It's a parallel to the ancient day King of the North invasion of Egypt by Antiochus Epiphanes. There's exactly the same thing occurring. Except this time, he comes with chariots and many ships and horsemen. An enormous overflowing army comes down from the north. And in verse 42, it says that he shall stretch, this is the Gogian invasion, he shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. So Egypt's a target. And it concludes in verse 45 by saying that Gog then from Egypt goes back northeast again and plants his tabernacle between the seas, that is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, in the city of Jerusalem, in the glorious holy mountain. But he will come to his end and none shall help him. Well, what is it all saying? The king of the north in verse 40 is the modern day power that controls the area of Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, the same area controlled by the ancient king of the north, that is by Antiochus Epiphanes. So any nation that controls those countries is the king of the north. The king of the north, therefore, is a foreign power occupying that ancient Seleucid territory. The king of the south is a foreign power occupying Egypt. Historically, that power was Britain. Britain left Egypt in the reign of Abdul Nasser, about 1956. So Egypt ceased to become the king of the south and simply became Egypt, which is why in verse 42 in Daniel 11, you just read of Egypt. The king of the north doesn't come against the king of the south. He comes against Egypt. The king of the south is Egypt under the control of a foreign power. She's no longer under the control of a foreign power. So she's just Egypt. But the king of the north is all those countries under the control of a foreign power. And they are, in the latter days, under the control of a foreign power. Russia will control all of that territory. The interesting thing, of course, in verse 40 is that the king of the north, that is, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, under the control of a foreign power, that power being Russia, shall push at him. Who's the him? Or the him is Turkey. The him is the king of Constantinople that you read of in verse 36 of this chapter. The king, originally Constantine, who will do according to his will, the Roman king who put his military capital in Constantinople. Well, the king of the north shall push against the king of Constantinople, which is, in modern terms, Turkey. The king of the south well, sorry, the king of the south will push at Turkey, I should have said. Britain pushing at Turkey in World War I. And then the king of the north comes against him, Turkey, and inundates the Middle East. So we would expect Russia to become the king of the north, then to attack Turkey, then to attack Egypt, and then Israel, according to the sequence of Daniel chapter 11. So let's put that together. Step one, Russia will take Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan and become the king of the north in the terms of Daniel 11 and verse 40. As the king of the north, step two, Russia will then push at Turkey, which is what it says. The king of the north shall come against him, like a whirlwind in Daniel 11 and verse 40. Then Egypt, verse 42. And then Israel. Verse 45, but by parallel with Ezekiel 38, 
This, as you know well, Tarshish objects. In Ezekiel 38 and verse 13, it says, The merchants of Tarshish, all the young lions, shall say, Art thou come to take a spoil? They object to this Gogian invasion. The result of all that is in Ezekiel 38 and verse 13. In fact, I'll read it to you because it's worth reading carefully. Ezekiel 38 and verse 13, the, sorry, verse 23, the last verse says this, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. God rules supreme. So the result is that Gog is destroyed, but Tarshish is not victorious. God is victorious at the conclusion of Ezekiel chapter 38. It's a parallel to Daniel 11 and verse 45. He shall come to his end and none shall help him. Or you might say, in the language of Numbers 24, verse 24, Amalek shall perish forever. It's the same point about the same people. So where does Numbers 24 fit into all of this? Well, you can see from the slide, I've put it as point number six. Russia invades the Middle East. There's an objection in Ezekiel 38 from the merchants of Tarshish. And an invasion. Numbers 24 appears to be the maritime sequel to Ezekiel 38 verse 13. The Tarshish powers try and stop the onslaught of the king of the north by, it appears, cutting his supply lines. They attack from Cyprus, the area of Syria, Iraq, to stop the supply line of the king of the north as he's come down. But it doesn't end well, because I've got to show you another quotation. Come with me to Psalm 48. Psalm 48 in verse 1. Now the context, of course, of this psalm is that it's a kingdom psalm. Psalm 48 verse 1. Great is Yahweh, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, it says, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So this is speaking about a time when the great king rules from Zion. It's a time when Christ is on the earth. And at that time, it says in verse 7, Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So clearly a hurricane comes from the east and destroys this enormous Tarshian maritime fleet. Now, Tarshish in the future will bring scattered Israel back home. It's the ships of Tarshish in Isaiah 60 that rescue the Jews. So clearly, that must happen later. But before, at least from the military portion of the ships of Tarshish, there is a great destruction from the east. How does it happen? Well, come with me to my final quotation, Isaiah 2, because here's the answer to the riddle. Tarshish, it appears, no doubt opposes the Gogian invasion, but answers that invasion with more than just words, more than just the protest of Ezekiel chapter 38. They answer it with a great maritime invasion, as spoken of in Numbers chapter 24. But in Isaiah chapter 2, we have the real story. 
For context, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 says, The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. It's a kingdom chapter. It's a chapter talking about the establishment of the kingdom age from Jerusalem. So there's a, the same context as Psalm 48. But look what it says in verse 12. For the day of Yahweh of hosts shall be upon everyone that's proud and lofty, upon everyone that's lifted up, and he shall be brought low, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up. You see the repeated words? Lofty, lifted up, high, lifted up, high, lifted up, upon every high tower. This is talking about the pride of man, everything about man that exalts himself. And upon all the ships of Tarshish, verse 16, and upon all pleasant pictures, the phrase pleasant pictures in the English Standard Version is <coughs> translated beautiful craft. The word pictures means an image or a ship or a craft. The New International Version on verse 16, every stately vessel. This is talking about that fleet from Cyprus. The fleet in Psalm 48, which is destroyed. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low and Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. And that's the point. Who wins the battle of Armageddon? Not Russia. Not Tarshish and her powers. But God. And you'll notice in verse 17 the parallels with Ezekiel 38 verse 23. Remember Ezekiel 38 verse 23, the last verse of the chapter said, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself and I'll be known in the eyes of many nations that I am Yahweh. Look at this verse. Isaiah 2 verse 17. The loftiness of man should be bowed down. The haughtiness of men should be made low and Yahweh alone should be exalted in that day. And that requires not only the destruction of Gog, but the destruction in verse 16 of this great maritime opposition to Gog from Cyprus. Because God alone will be the victor of the Battle of Armageddon. So what have we seen? Well, we've seen, I think, that all this fits perfectly into the context of Numbers 24. When the star from Jacob finally returns to this earth and the scepter arises from Israel, he shall be greater than Agag. He'll be greater than the latter-day Amalekite. But he won't just be greater than Agag. He'll have dominion over the entire world. And all human opposition, all human pride, all human arrogance will be destroyed. As Balaam said, wow, who shall live when God does that? And the answer to Balaam's question, brothers and sisters, is it's simple. Who shall live when God doeth that? The saints. We shall live when God doeth that. Because, of course, when Christ does return, when the star of Jacob does come, he doesn't come alone. He comes with all his saints with him, in the words of Zechariah 14 and verse 5. And that's the hope we have before us. 
a great northern invasion, a Tarshian response, destruction of that fleet and all its pride, destruction of Latter-day Amalek and all his pride, the exaltation of the scepter of Israel and Yahweh alone exalted in that day. Thank you.